my name is Moritz, Moritz von Settlemann, as you would correctly pronounce it in German. You can just call me whatever you like. Yeah. I live in Germany. My breed is a working type of Renaissance Bulldog. And I got started pretty much the day I was born because I grew up in a Bulldog family, really. My, my parents had Bulldogs, I guess, since the early 70s or mm -hmm. maybe late 60s and they started out with the regular English Bulldog at that time and we kept a bunch of dogs over the years we had Bull Mastiffs, English Bulldogs, mixed breed, Pitbull mixed with a Boxer ever since I, I was born I was pretty much surrounded by dogs I never lived without a dog really so yeah that's that's basically how, how it all started mm -hmm. I just wanted a dog that was a healthy version of what I was used to as a, as a child, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Because the English Bulldogs that we had, they had pretty much a lifespan of maybe six or eight years. And by the time they were eight, they were really dragging their hind legs behind them. It was just a terrible sight for me as a child. So I, I really wanted to do something about that. And if I wanted a dog myself, then I would want a Bulldog, just because I love the personality, the type. But I didn't want to have to deal with all of these veterinary costs and all that in the, in the end of their lives. So that's how I started. I started researching the old English Bulldog. At the time when my parents had Bulldogs, there was this really big breeder from Switzerland. Her name was Imelda Angern, who in return created the Continental Bulldog years later. That was one of the breeders that my parents worked with. And I guess my dad told me about the old English Bulldog that she had created or that she was trying to create. And this is how the search started. Well, we're trying to, to keep a working ability in the Bulldogs and health that should be normal to every dog. So we do a lot of testing with the breed in general, whether it be mental testing and physical tests. So the style of bulldog that I have is not like the English bulldog at all, I would say. I think most of the time it has more in common with an American bulldog or even even maybe an American Staffordshire type of dog. The nose, the muzzle might be a little bit shorter and we might have more wrinkles than, than a pit bull, for instance, would have. But other than that, they're, they're more leggy in their appearance. They all have long tails. They have open nostrils. They can breathe. And yeah, it is, it is more a type of original bulldog. Many times people will say that they're creating a original bulldog from the working time, like from the, from the bull baiting time. If you research history, you realize very quickly that the bulldog from that time had pretty much nothing to do with the old English bulldogs or the English bulldogs that we see right now. They weren't very wrinkly. They weren't heavy. They looked a lot more like a pit bull or like a terrier. Than, than what we would think. So, and it is, it's a very simple reason for that. It's simply because if you do work your dogs, you realize that a dog with a short muzzle can't bite. It's, it's a myth. Like an undershot jaw, it's not better for biting, not at all. You, you realize that very, very quickly. So we took away all these things, or we trying to still take them away, like the, like the undershot jaw, or, or the very wide chest, simply because they're not any good for work. Well, it's not only my own work. I really have to put emphasis on that because mm -hmm. we're working kind of as a loose team. The foundation stock that we used came from the Renaissance Bulldogs, which were created in the U.S. And we've used 
were planning on maybe using a couple of outcrosses. There have been outcrosses before, but I know for a fact that inside of that bloodline, we have Hermes Bulldogs, we have American Bulldogs, I think a whole lot of American Bulldogs. I don't know for sure because the information about that time when that breed was created is very, very limited or at least... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply let's say restricted because the guy that did it isn't very open about talking about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we have American Bulldogs. Apparently we have a Bull Mastiff in there and I know Bull Mastiffs. I don't really see a whole lot of Bull Mastiff in there, but this is what, what the official website of his says. Apparently we have band dogs, which are crosses in this case between pit bulls and an English Mastiff. I know for a fact that there have been other pit bulls introduced. There was at least one Soroline Pitbull, and along those lines of the of the Hermes bulldog, Greg Hermes at the time was creating his his breed as well. So he had a bunch of other dogs, I would say that he that he mixed together in order to create his line, which obviously consists out of English bulldog, pitbull, and American bulldog again. Mm-hmm. So I think the amount of English bulldog actually inside of the breed is very low, probably between. 10 to 20 percent well we have a friend of ours who has just recently crossed a renaissance bulldog from from working bulls kennel denmark to a pit bull from a spanish line that has a has a small amount of presa canario in it that is an interesting cross by itself they just wanted to mix that and i guess right now we're waiting for the puppies to show up and to kind of take a look at them and maybe one of these dogs is going to be is going to be used for for breeding. And there's been another breeding this year. Um, it was an old English bulldog with a small percentage of Renaissance bulldog blood. And um, yeah, that is pretty much an outcross too. I would say it was crossed to another uh, to another Renaissance bulldog from Working Bulls Kennel Denmark. And yeah, one of the breeders um, from from Slovenia kept one of these dogs. And as a, like from what I'm hearing, it develops very, very well. It's really, if you know your your stuff about genetics and biology, as soon as you you limit a gene pool to just itself, like to kind of make like an insular population, as you if you will, um, you'll get problems eventually. And that's what kind of breed standards are for. You know what you're aiming for, what your ideal dog would be and why wouldn't you use a different breed or something really healthy from somewhere why, why the hell wouldn't you use a street dog if it fit your standard really yeah. it, it doesn't matter it'll it'll be all for the better i i've been um working with some of these breeds that have a really close gene pool like german shepherds or, or boxers it's terrible i was i was decoying at the boxer club in, in germany and among all these boxers there was really one good boxer that I really liked, and they said they couldn't breed it. And I said, why, why wouldn't you? It's a perfectly good dog. And they said, well, the nails of this dog, they're white. doesn't fit our standard. Oh, my God. God, you have, like, this is the only good dog among, like, 30. Please breed him. Just why wouldn't you? But they, they restrict themselves so much that they're eventually, the, the breed is going to die if they don't do something about it. It's just the way it is. 
Right. Yeah, that's sad. Back when the Renaissance Bulldog was created, there was the, or there still is the Renaissance Bulldog Kennel Club, which I guess I have to mention because they are the the club that basically owns the right to the name even of Renaissance Bulldog, and they're a, a group of people that that preserve this kind of breed. And among those people, there's a guy, a terrific guy by the name of Goraz Trovat. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, I just call him Goraz, and uh, he's from Slovenia, and he kind of had the same vision as I would have, and he found that these dogs were incredible workers. He bought a couple of dogs, and among those dogs, there was pretty much the, the grandmother of all of the working bulldogs that we have right now, which was uh, Iron, Iron Bull's Cuba. It was an amazing dog, and he was a working dog person, and he, again, kind of infected another guy who was a working dog guy from Denmark by the name of Martin Thompson, and he bought a son of hers and a daughter, which were, I mean, they were amazing working dogs, and I guess this is how the entire idea started of kind of putting everything to the side that was the general idea about how to create a breed or how to follow a standard, but just to, to select for working ability. So these guys then again started working with a German club called the AVD, which is a club for Presa Canarios, who have a very, very strict standard for, for selecting their breeding stock. And they have a system in place to test their dogs, which is probably the best I've ever seen. And they started to work their dogs with these guys and to test them. Well, as luck would have it, the, these dogs passed the guidelines. And that's how, how they started. And I myself bought a dog from a different breeder that was a really good worker. I was a working dog person myself. I had the hopes that she would be, that she would be a good dog and suited for that started working her, figured out about that ABD club, figured, found these guys, and we kind of connected, and that's how it all started. Obviously, the job that I think, or my, my colleagues would think would be the most important is personal protection. This is where this breed really, really excels at. This is where, the, where you can really test the dogs very, very well. A weight pull, for example, when, when a dog pulls a certain amount of weight, then you know it's very good in that specific area. And you can do the same thing with personal protection dogs. You can test them mentally in, in various ways and have like a team of other people judging, like a neutral bunch of people that would, that would compare your dogs to, to the other dogs and give you a very, a very exact idea about what your dog is capable of doing and what not. And this is basically what we're trying to accomplish, to make a dog that's, that excels at personal protection. And they already do, in a way. They're already up there. Like, if, if we go into a competition for personal protection dogs, we're, like, we've never been the last, in, and we've a couple of times we've been the first in the competition. That means we've competed with the other really good protection sport breeds, like Presa Canarius or the Belgian Malinois, which is amazing. Like I didn't think it was possible that these dogs could be that good, but but they were. There were a couple of dogs that were just right up there with them. So this is the direction in which we're going. And obviously, you can do a whole bunch of other things. I work a lot of obedience with my dogs. This is what I do on a daily basis. I get them out, 
do my obedience routines, teach them new tricks. They're supposed to be really intelligent, which is kind of odd to say about a bulldog. But yeah, some of them are very intelligent, others not so much, but it's not that we put the emphasis on this. So they, they do very well in obedience for me, at least. Martin Thompson from, from Denmark, he does a lot of weight pull with his dogs, as well as agility. Um, I guess that's pretty much the extent of it, that what we're working on right now. Oh, actually, nose work. We're, still, we're doing a couple of cool nose work things with them. And I used to do a lot of tracking with one of my dogs as well. And they, they don't have the best nose, obviously, because they're bulldogs, but they have the necessary drive for it, which is very interesting. They'll never be like a hunting dog, but they'll have as much fun as one, at least. Mm-hmm. They, they love doing that, and that's what we work on, but it's not what we select for. We mm-hmm. select for, for stamina, for courage, for the correct bite, the correct movements, and the speed, and the tenacity, pretty much. You know? The original Renaissance Bulldog standard is a very loose standard, and I think we're still pretty much within that standard. We're expecting a a Bulldog from our line to be somewhere between, let's say, 24 kilos and 35-ish. Most of them are a bit bigger. We have a bunch of dogs that are at the 30, might be 37, 38 kilos, and very few that are a bit lighter in the weights and i think roughly 45 centimeters in height at the shoulder would be would be an ideal really but some of them are higher i mean we have one of the biggest dogs around right now is working bulls kennel denmark's boomer that's his name and he's like 48 centimeters at the shoulder which is quite a big dog he's, he's really big mm-hmm. so <clears throat> it's, it's a working breed and working breeds are never very uniform they're always all over the place if you look at let's say the malinois you have huge dogs and very tiny dogs long coat short coat in different colors and we don't really care that much about it at least i don't really care much about it as long as it's still a bulldog as long as you can look from the distance and say hey there, there's a bulldog you know then i'm fine with it really mm-hmm. but others don't think so but we have a standard and we have a type test as well that is held very loosely and within that type test, I guess the most important things would be the, the positioning of the teeth, whether the teeth are all there, whether the feet are straight, the legs are straight, all these things that you kind of need for, for working ability. Goraz from Slovenia still registers his dogs with, with that club, and he's very active in, within that club. I used to be with a, with a European registry, but yeah, we had, we had our little differences, and I am registering with the youth. EBR now, that's the abbreviation for there for that registry. It's a, it's a really nice guy from Ireland that does it. I guess with the next generation, we at least I and my friend from Denmark will be solely registering our dogs with the ABD. We have, give, have been given the opportunity to register our dogs there if they pass all the, the requirements that the Presa Canarios in their club would have to meet. And yeah, so far it looks like we match those requirements, and we can start registering our dogs there. I've been to one confirmation show in my life, and my dog won a prize. I have no idea what I did right. <laughs> I just went into the ring, did the thing, the judge gave me a, a cup in the end, and I was happy. So I have really, it wasn't my kind of people there, so I don't do that anymore. I guess this is a hobby for, for a different type of guy. I'm fine with that, really. If you if you want to go to a beauty contest, then 
then do it. I mean, what, whatever makes you happy, right? We have confirmation type test that is being held at the, at the competitions that we go to. We have a judge, my friend from Denmark, Martin Thompson, that is pretty much on every event and you can do a type test with him. So he will go through the standard, look, look at the dog and in the end give you a certificate that will tell you exactly what, how your dog compares to the standard. If you get a result, it, I guess a one would be the best kind of result. And the, I don't know when you fail, when your dog it doesn't match the standard anymore, but you get a very accurate description of, of what your dog is like physically. So that's what we do. If, you're, if our dogs pass, then we never go back and never think about it again. But it's just something that we have to keep in check. Mm -hmm. We don't want to have like a line where, where there's English Bulldog type of dogs and pit bulls and everything's just accepted under one, under one catch-all term of working. Mm -hmm. We still want to have like a type that maybe in I don't know, 10 generations is a bit more uniform than it is. Mm -hmm. If your dog has to pass that, then there's a health test which involves hip dysplasia, elbow dysplasia, spondylosis, your, the heart of the dog is going to be tested, and a bunch of other things. And pretty much the results have to be almost flawless with the dog. It is very, very difficult to pass it. You might be familiar with the, the, the way that hip dysplasia is rated. It's like from, one to, from A to, I guess, an E mm -hmm. or something. So you have A, B, C, D, E. E meaning really severe hip dysplasia. The dog can't really walk anymore and a is a dog that will never have a problem in his life so within that within that club we only breed a and b hips if your dog has a c hip it must be amazing at everything else and be the perfect dog in order to be able to be bred but um yeah the health restrictions are very very strict that's the health Part of the of the of the evaluation process, and then we have the general mental test, which is probably the one that we spend the most time on. Because first of all, it's fun to do, and most of us don't do it once. We do it like five or six times because on every event there's still this test, and it's like it's like a hobby kind of thing almost. So it is. It has an environmental part where your dog has been exposed to. To different environmental stimuli like umbrellas. I think I've even sent you a video of one of these of one of these tests. It's like umbrellas, and you never really know what happens. There's definitely a couple of gunshots involved. You'll see how the dog reacts to that. Strangers, and always a, there's always a part that you can't really train for. I remember I did the breed test in summer, and there was like a a push cart or something like that where your dog had to hop on you had to push your dog across the field and see how it does sometimes there's people laying on the floor your dog has to jump over them or maybe some smoke or coming out of the machine and your dog has to run through it a big liner that they pull up and, and pull over the dog's head and stuff like that just to see whether the dog is scared to these stimuli or maybe possibly even super aggressive towards them which is this is one part of that of that evaluation process. The second part of that is a, a protection part that consists out of a surprise attack. Basically, you walk your dog around the field and all of a sudden a decoy jumps out of the blind and attacks your dog and yourself full force. And you see what your dog does. If it likes, if it defends you, then you know what kind of dog you have. If it doesn't, then 
Well, you also know what kind of dog you have. <laughs> and yeah. um, then there is a long send, it's called a face attack, where you send your dog across the field. The dog will see the decoy from the very beginning, and the decoy will make an attack on the dog from the distance. That means your dog already knows there is somebody. It's not a surprise to him, but that person charges at the dog. And you'll see what your dog does in that in that scenario. And there's two or there's three types of tests within this within this breed evaluation tests. There's ZWP one, two, and three. One is basically the easiest. You do the attacks with a sleeve. The pressure or the scariness of the decoy isn't as bad as in two or three. Three being insanely crazy. I think there's like just a handful of dogs that ever have taken the test and actually passed it. It's only presser scenarios. I think there's only one dog alive that actually has that title. It is, it is a very, very difficult test to pass for a dog. And most of the people actually will tell you that they don't want a dog that's able to pass those tests. So it is a very tough test for, and if you're the right guy, then yeah, go for it. And if you have the right dog for it, obviously. But most of us do the ZWP1, which is with a sleeve, and the ZW2, ZWP2, which is with a with a full body suit. Mm -hmm. This is oh, and then there's an endurance test actually. That that's the fourth test actually. It's, it's uh, for the bulldog. It's 15 kilometers in one hour to the goal. That's pretty mm -hmm. much it. You gotta get there after 20 minutes. The heart rate is being taken of the dog. And you see whether your dog is in still good shape and has recovered from that from that long run, or not. And in case it hasn't, then you I guess you got to go to the vet and check if the dog's heart out or something like that. But generally, a dog would would be able to to do that. The Presser Canaries are running 25 kilometers in a little bit more time, but we decided since the legs of a bulldog are a bit shorter, that we'll go for 15 kilometers. So yeah, four four different tests for the same breed. And if you pass all four of them, you get approved to be bred. Awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, and it's a lot of work. And I think this is kind of necessary to, to develop a working breed. And not many people like to put in the work. It's one thing to, I mean, I know that it's really hard work to drive to all these dog shows and to show your dog. I mean, some of these guys are busy all year driving all through the country showing their dogs. But working your dogs in the field, preparing them for these tests, running and, and to pay for all the health evaluations, it is, it is a lot of work too and not many people are willing to do it, which is probably why there aren't many working bulldogs out there, at least not of that. Right. <clears throat> How do they do in the water? Yeah, well, generally they do really good. I mean, there's, there's the majority of dogs are crazy about water pretty much. We're having, I, I had one litter this year that really wasn't all too fond about it. I, I don't know what really happened there. And I tried to prepare them from, from a very early age, like really like four weeks old puppies that had like dipped into the water very carefully and waited until they started paddling. And really what happened, the dogs didn't paddle. They just, they were just kind of hanging in there, and if I had let go of them, they would have probably drowned. They just got used to the sensation of water on their feet, and they never really got secured by water. But I have one of these dogs still here, and he runs through the water, and he has no problem with it. 
but he doesn't really like it that much. But it's, it's so far, it's just one litter. I know a story from another from another dog that is just so crazy about water. The guy that that owns her, he does these runs through like obstacles and all that. I guess it's like a marathon where you take your dog along, and he can't run by water with his dog because she is so crazy about him that she will forget the running, she will forget the contest, everything. He just has to really pull her away from the water to keep running. So, yeah. And generally, in general, they should like it. With this litter, with this specific one, I'm not so sure if they're ever going to. If they're ever going to do, yeah. What dogs handle the, the hot and the cold? I think they handle the hot a bit better than the cold, actually. Maybe, mm -hmm. at least the dogs that, that I've known. They don't really mind the cold, but I wouldn't keep them outside in a kennel if it's like below freezing temperatures. If you do keep them outside, of, outside in a kennel that you can hopefully do, you will have to have a heated box or something along those lines. They, they're not like a Caucasian Shepherd or a Husky that can just live in the cold. They have a very short fur and the belly is pretty much pretty much naked. They don't have any fur there at all, so mm. not much protection there. In the heat, well, the biggest problem I've encountered with it is that I can't tell if the heat is bothering them at all. Like, my my female that I have here, I, I think I even sent you a video of her, her working in protection sport. It was an insanely hot day that day. It was 36 degrees Celsius, which probably compares to about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It was super hot outside, and she didn't seem to mind. You know, she she just did the same things as she usually would. She might have not jumped as high as she usually would, but other than that, she was exactly the same. She would chase a ball until she probably dies. Actually, I cannot tell when to stop with her. This is the biggest problem. I think if your if your dog has a like like a heat stroke or something like that then you'll get very few things that you could possibly tell it beforehand. Mm -hmm. You know, so they I guess they handle it very well. I've never pushed them. Like, there will always be a point when in the extreme heat where I'm like, okay, you got to go inside now. I'm going to throw you into a lake or something because this can't be healthy right now, what you're doing. But so far, they all survived. I guess they're doing really well with it. And, mm -hmm. like, sometimes she would, like, she would do things that really drive me crazy because... She just had like this huge long send attack and has been worked really hard on the sleeve. I would call her off back to me. She would like go to a heel, look at me, and she wouldn't even pant. And it's like, dude, you gotta, you gotta let your tongue hang out of your mouth, otherwise you'll die. And she's like, no, nah, I want to go again, you know. So this is this is actually kind of a bad thing. I, I wish that specific dog would show me a little more of of how, how her heat tolerance is, because she just doesn't mind. Wow. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And mm. you can, if you're not really cautious about that, the same can actually happen in old English Bulldogs, because this, they still have a lot of English Bulldog blood, and it's not only their, their body shape that, that really depends on it. You know, It's like sometimes you see these pinched nostrils and you don't think much about it, but it's really it's terrible to dog for your dog to virtually breathe through a straw you know what i mean i had to put my oldest dog down and she was she was an old english bulldog that looked physically great but by the time she was four she had a surgery on all four legs and i guess i put in too much money into her 
as I would have into a new into an, an old used car, I guess. I guess around eight to nine thousand euros went into that dog, and physically, she looked great. You know? but internally, that dog was was just a wreck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to test your dogs, and you want to test the parents of the dog, and you want to know exactly what these dogs can do, what their test and health results are. You know, if you just rely on the word of the breeder, which I did at the time where where I bought her from, um, it can end up very badly, even though your dog looks as though it's healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very important. I, and, you know, we you can't control environmental issues, like just like us. Right. We could live a, a super healthy life and then, you know, get sick and get yeah. cancers. So, yeah, it's just not, it's not you know, 100% guarantee, but like you say, you're giving this dog every opportunity to live a, a healthy life, and that's so important in yeah. dog breeding and in the dog world, because you just don't want a dog that's going to suffer the last no. three or four years of their life, and, you know, like the English Bulldogs do, so, yeah. yeah. It's just, yeah, it's terrible, I mean, and it's, it's actually what we're finding out, it isn't very hard to keep the health in check, really, I mean, if you think about it, the health, the proper health test would be along the lines of maybe $400 to get the dog checks that checked out entirely. What's really hard is to say no. A breeder has to have a dog that looks perfect, that works perfectly. He does those tests, they're not what he wants or what he has expected. And then he has to make a choice and say, no, I'm not going to breed that dog. And this is the real, this is the truly hard part about it. So most of the breeders rather don't do the health tests than to get a bad uh, result back you know so this is this is the, i think this is the biggest part about breeding in bulldogs you have like if you if you see a breeder that has 15 dogs and of these 15 dogs he bred all of them something must be wrong like if he has 15 dogs he should have let's say 30 dogs and half of them he has thrown out of the program you know, he would never breed. So, yeah, saying no probably is the, is the most important part about that. The working dog community, they just, I mean, all of the working dog people, they have their club that they go to. They have dog people that they meet. They know that they rely on others for their dog, for their own dog to be better and for the breed to be better. It is a, It really is a community thing to, to breed and raise working dogs, I think, and in the show ring, it's a different story because it's just you and your dog against all of the others. While in a dog club, it's really, it go. I mean, you got to mow the lawn on the dog field, right? Somebody's got to do it. And if you're, if you happen to have the right lawnmower, you you just go there and do it for them and stuff like that. It's a team effort, like the entire thing is. So I guess that's why working dog people are in general very very friendly and very team oriented. Mhm. Absolutely. <clears throat> now, here's a question I, I ask everybody, not necessarily specific to any breeder or breed or working club. What are some of the breeds that you that you really like and, and kind of follow? And, and Obviously, uh, obviously the Presa Canario. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm training in the Presa Canario club with, I guess, the largest in, in, in Germany or maybe even the world, the largest Presa Canario working club. And I, I follow the, the litters that they have. I see the dogs. Every time I go to training, I see at least 
10 of these dogs and I know their the lineages. Uh, I really, really love them. I mean, I, I love big dogs in general. They have their downsides. That's why I don't have one or don't have one anymore. I used to have big dogs too. But I really, really love Fresa Canarios and I love Belgian Shepherds simply because I see them, I compete with them, I decoy them very regularly. They're, they're probably the, the working dog breed at the moment that is just everywhere, you know. Since the last 15 years, there is not a single dog club that doesn't have a Belgian Shepherd somewhere. And they're always good, they're always amazing, they're doing incredible work with them. So yeah, I love I love working with them actually, and I love seeing them. I'm a follower, and I follow them a little bit too. I know, like, you you maybe watch yourself do it. Like, you think you sit you sit somewhere and you think like, hey, if I wanted to buy a Presa Canaria, which one would I get? And you start googling and you start looking at the litters, you look at videos, and this is what I do very very frequently with Belgian with Belgian Malinois, I or or Dutch herders, you know. I just, I see a dog and I'm thinking like, hey, who bred that thing? That's amazing. I want to know who the parents are and what is that dog working as? Is it a police dog or whatever? I try to find out things. So these are basically the two breeds that I like the most. But but obviously there is a bunch of other breeds that I love. Whenever there is a good dog on the field, I want to know more about it, you know? And it's really, I, I there's like the saying, I guess it's the German saying, like it, it goes beautiful dog is not always a good dog but a good dog is always beautiful you know so it's like if there is like a giant schnauzer or whatever on the field and it's really cool i mean i hate dogs with long hair but hell i'm gonna google that dog and i'm gonna find out more about it you know this is what i like to hear when i listen to a podcast about dogs and people that have multiple dogs uh, so what is your your mental setup or where do you house your dogs and and what's the reasoning behind your setup? Yeah, well, I have a room inside of the house that's just for the dogs. That's where their crates are. And I have another room in the shed outside. That's where, for instance, dogs would go that can't really have a, a female in heat around. Or, well, I like to sleep too, you know. So that dog's going to go to the shed. And they have a room that the setup's pretty much exactly the same as inside. So then they know the, the room they're used to that and yeah they can just stay there for the night it's heated and it's basically the same setup as as the setup i have inside but just the the bare room with a bunch of of crates flat crates really Mm -hmm. and then i have them like on kind of a rotation system like i don't like too many especially because my dogs are quite active i don't like to have more than one dog outside and have the run of the house as soon as there are two dogs they'll get into trouble one way or another, they, they'll start playing, they start finding something to, to pick a fight over or at least to, to, to carry around and show the other dog. It, it's, it's always a mess. So I always have that kind of rotation system where I take one dog out of the room and have the run around in the house and it lasts maybe for two or three hours, depending on what we do. Then they'll take up the next dog and have him in the, in the house. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much how it goes, but for how the house is set up, the, the the puppies are also in the shed most of the time simply because it's it's a mess to have so many dogs and puppies in one room. I just don't like to do that. And some females aren't really fond of that either to have other dogs around. So they're going into the shed. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I, I don't have any outside kennels. My dog, like even the crates inside of the dog room, they're always open. I don't, I don't 
really put them in the crate and close it down. They're, mm-hmm. They can run around, they can visit other dogs, they can even, they don't really play much. I, I, I kind of trained them to be quite calm inside of their, inside of their room. But they, they can do whatever they want inside of that room. So yeah, we have a, we have a working pack and I, like in the mornings or in the evenings, I let them all out together and they, they go about their business outside t- together. It's not like we have to always only have one dog outside for training. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's another question that's fascinating me because you know just because I'm learning and and want to know and there's different schools of thought and I'm just and I think it's interesting to hear people's opinion on this. What kind of diet do you feed your dogs and the reasoning behind that and how many times a day, etc. Yeah, right now I have I'm, I'm using kibble. I have a, a really great brand of kibble that is very local, and I used to feed raw barf diet call it i guess but i i loved it i i would recommend this to any everybody if you really know what you're doing if you know how to put all the nutrients together and you really know what's best for your dog then it is the perfect perfect diet feed raw if you really can and if you know what you're doing that's one of the very important things about it if you don't then you can malnutrition your dog within weeks really and if you don't have something like work to keep your dog in check. If you realize your dog isn't as fast anymore, what, what's going on there, you might want to change the diet, right? But if you don't do stuff like that, then it's really hard to, to see all of the aspects that, that can relate to feeding, you know? So I, I did that for years and I loved it. And especially because I could go for and, and, and customize a diet for every dog individually. And if the dog needs more fat, I would give it more protein or whatever it needed. However, if you travel a lot, like I do, it is not nice to travel with a suitcase full of raw meat. It sucks, especially in the summer. And if you have, if you carry like intestines or something like that, it's really not cool. So I switched to kibble and I, and I started trying it again. And I found this brand that really works well for all of the dogs. So I kept it so far. And I think of switching back to, to raw every now and again. I might eventually do it simply because I liked it so much and it was actually cheaper than the kibble that I'm using right now. But for convenience, not so much right now. I wouldn't see myself doing the raw diet, maybe just a little bit, introducing some things, maybe mixing it, but, but who yeah, knows. Never really, like if you start mixing it, it never really gets you the desire. Never, never really. Okay, uh, yeah. But like if you, for instance, say hey you have six months of the year where it's cold outside and you could you could do that i really strongly recommend to anybody to just give it a try for a couple of months because the understanding you get about dog nutrition is is the you you step up your game after that because you see changes instantly like within two weeks once you add more fat or more protein or some of that vegetable the dog will respond to it very very quickly and if you keep keep feeding the same kibble year in year out, dog's not going to change. You won't see those changes. You'd have to to try out twenty different styles of, of dog food brands to even get close to what you can experience with a with a raw food diet. So if you if you have the time and you decide to just give it a shot for a couple of months, then you're going to learn something about you or your and your dog totally. Definitely. I can only recommend it as an experience. Is there any supplements on the market that 
that you, you've used or thought about using? <laughs> I just talked to a friend of mine about that. We live right next to a to a breeder of racehorses, and she's told me that rice bran oil is doping for horses. Like, if she goes to a race, they would test whether the horse has rice bran oil in its bloodstream. I had no idea. Apparently, yeah. it raises the testosterone levels or something. It is like like doping. And I talked to a friend of mine about that, and he was like, yeah, I do that from time to time. I give my dog rice bran oil, and it works, you know. So I, I, I'm thinking of trying it out. I don't know if it's any good for the dog. Hell, if it works, I'm going to take it myself, right? But... <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking about doing that. Other than that, I use different kinds of oils, uh, like flaxseed oils, and like if you if you have a dog that is very active, it needs more fat. It's like our what what's carb, carbs for for the human body is is fat for the for the canine body, really. So I, I supplement a lot with oils. Sometimes they get vitamin C powder, especially after whelping. This really helps to helps the the bones and the ligaments to tighten up again in a female dog. Yeah, and other than that, I think my the kibble brand that I'm using right now really covers pretty much everything I used to I used to use like like greenlit muscle powder and stuff like that that many people use for the joints and for the for the cartilage inside of the joints. Yeah, I used to do a lot more supplementing. Ever since I I have that that brand, I'm not doing that much anymore, except for different oils or sometimes even like just beef fat, like really little little cubes of beef fat that I just throw into the into the, into the food. They, mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. The whelping process, are they free whelpers or how, yeah. how is it? Yeah. Yeah. They, they're, they're I, I think my, the, the one female that I have, she was a C-section, but it was from a different breeder. Mm -hmm. But I think that the female had like 11 pups or something like that. Wow. So that's kind of understandable. But like the last, the last litter that we had, I thought the dog needed a C-section, especially because her mother needed one as well. And I already had the dog inside of the car, and I started driving to the vet. I called her up on a Sunday, of course, on a Sunday. By the time I was at the vet's office, she had two two, two puppies already. Oh, so wow. inside of the car. I drove back again, and the rest went really flawless. I can't really think of, a, of another dog that needed a C-section apart from that one in the in the last... I'd say six years. Wow. Maybe. Yeah, I don't think they were all natural whelpers, as far as I, as far as I know. And what have you seen that the average uh, litter size has been for? It is is getting a lot, rather large at the at the moment. I think, like just this year, there was another litter with eleven puppies, also wow. natural birth. Yeah, it was huge. My dog had seven, and I guess it's about six to eight. Roughly, okay. we have one dog that simply just doesn't like to get puppies. She had one, and like the others died off in the womb and stuff like that. She just didn't didn't like to have puppies, I guess. She, or maybe it was the wrong male. Or I don't know what that that was all about. But other than that, I would say between six and eight. This would probably be the average, and we frequently have more than ten. Wow. Yeah, that's big litters. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. <clears throat> so I guess I'll, I'll wrap it up right now. Any messages or anything you'd like to convey that I didn't ask or anything? And well, I guess I guess lots of viewers will 
be interested in getting a new dog. I think this is where when the most research is being done, and this is when the most viewers will find this interview, I guess. So I think another, like the last message would be, whenever you're looking for a dog, fact check as much as you can. If you like, dog breeders are a bit like I feel like they're like restaurant owners, you know. They like if you fly into into America, you'll see like three restaurants that say we have the best burger in town, and that's just at the airport, you know. And you gotta check for yourself. You gotta get in there, buy the burger, and then you gotta ask the guy, where did you get your meat from? And if he starts getting offended, like, hey, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Where I'm getting my meat from? Then you know that something's wrong with the meat, you know. So if you if you're interested into a dog in a dog and you know what your dog's supposed to do, if it's if it maybe is supposed to do a job, be sure that the parents of that dog are already doing this job. If you want a healthy dog, get health tests from the parents of that dog, and don't just listen to what the breeder says. They'll be like, "Yeah, my dog's a health test is sure." See the certificates. Take a look at the certificates, and really just fact check everything you can because there's a lot of stuff out there and a lot of stories about people selling dogs that just that were just very disappointing for many people and if you don't want to be disappointed yeah take nobody's word it's pretty much all I, all I can say as, as a last message kind of <laughs> housing your dog and having like a small apartment or something like that I always like when people tell me that they can't have a dog because they're only living in, in a small apartment I always tell them that it doesn't really matter how big the apartment is. It might feel that way, but any dog has the same requirements. And if you have a very active dog, you end up spending a couple of hours outside with them anyway. And if, it, if you have a high drive dog, a very energetic one, you'll never, almost never exceed two or three hours outside with an individual dog. It is very rare that there's a dog that requires six hours of work. It's almost non-existent, really. So, yeah, I, I, when I was a student, I lived across a lady that had this tiny apartment, and she was living there with two Great Danes. And it was literally like a 40-square-foot apartment or something like that. It was just tiny. And, yeah, she was like, yeah, my dogs just sleep in my apartment. They don't live here. They live outside, you know? So if you, if you go about it with that kind of mindset, then I think you can keep a working dog anywhere. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't matter. I think there are some of the some dogs that are so highly energetic that they might need more than two hours, but rarely more than three. Like really, very rarely. Yeah, and it, it, the opposite could happen too. That you can get a Belgian Malinois that's perfect for thirty minutes. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. It just depends on the dog. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I. Yeah, I think that that any dog would be fine in the small living space. Yeah. As as yeah. said, they don't live here; they just sleep here. 